You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, Citizens Church. It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11 this morning. And I know uh, you just read those, hopefully, in your home, but I want to read through those again. And just before uh, turning our attention to verse 5, I want to remind uh, you, church, that in these difficult times, our hope and our heart as a church is that you not walk through this difficulty alone, uh, especially if you are in need right now financially, in need of prayer, in need of counsel, spiritual guidance. Would you please uh, let those uh, needs, uh, would you make, rather, make those needs known to us? And the best way to do that would be to email us requests at citizenschurch.com. I know I've said it, but again, uh, we are here for you. Uh, you don't have to walk through this alone, and uh, we are truly together in love in all of this. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. I want to read through it and then uh, go back a little bit to last week. Verse 5 says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. If I were to take the last few weeks and then even project into the next several weeks and and summarize all of that into a big idea, it would be that those who follow Jesus will become like Jesus through relationship with Jesus. And how this works in our lives is that we are loved right where we are, that God loves us as we are. He meets us in our sin and meets us in our brokenness with the love and grace of the gospel of Jesus. And and change in the Christian life is not a prerequisite for love. But like we looked at last week, like the father who meets the broken son on the road and and lavishes him with love and with grace, that's how God meets us. He does not want servants who earn his love. He wants children who receive his love. And then that love, once received, will not leave us as we are. That love will change us. Namely, it will change us to become like Jesus. And so, starting this conversation two weeks ago, we answered the question, why it matters, because Jesus is king, and because it's who we are in Christ. And last week, we looked at how this happens by seeking relationship with Jesus, seeking and setting our minds on Jesus as he is right now, seated at the right hand of God, uh, ruling and reigning over all things, the one who has power over heaven and earth, and the one who is serving as our priest pleading our case. And so to think, right now, Jesus is speaking words of life and intercession and defense about you always. 
So in this crisis, he pleads your case. In, in, in all of these unknown circumstances, he's pleading your case. In uh, you know your sin and your failure in another bout of anxiety in the middle of a difficult relationship or in the middle of a failing marriage, Christ, your priest at God's right hand, pleading for you because he is for you. And so as we seek him there, what happens is, is, is our loves are reordered around him. He becomes the greatest love in our life. And, and the voice that intercedes for us speaks louder than our shame. It interrupts the voice of condemnation so that we change. And the becoming like Jesus, it happens from a place of love, not from a place of being afraid that we would become someone that we don't like. That was all the last two weeks. In verse 5, we start answering the question of what does it look like? And it's very practical. It's this practical explanation of what looking like Jesus actually looks like. In fact, as we read through it just now, you probably heard there are two sets of rules even. There's these two lists, and they're negative, and and they're a list of things to not do, right? No sexual morality, and no anger, and no coveting, and no lying, And I know that for many of you, maybe this is starting to speak your language. And what I mean by that is you're uh, a high achiever and you really appreciate a list and appreciate the clarity and you've been waiting for this. Like, tell me what to do and tell me what not to do. And and I will get some sticky notes and I'll make a spreadsheet and I'll be like Jesus by Friday, right? And I hope that's true. But what, what you also see in what we just read is not just two sets of rules, but what you heard is uh, phrases and reminders and statements of truth surrounding all of the commands. Uh, and, and surrounding the commands, you heard things like, uh, you've put on the new self. That's identity. You heard things like Christ is all and is in all because the commands in the Bible, whenever we get these from God, they are always surrounded by who you are and surrounded by what story you belong to and surrounded by what relationship you are in. And so would you see this before we jump in? God is not after rule keeping simply for the sake of keeping the rules. The focus actually isn't even on the rules. The focus is on the story of what Christ has done for us, and the focus is on what Christ wants to do in us, and our obedience to what he says is rooted in who he is to us and rooted in who we are to him. This is really important because so often, and not just in my observations, but so often in my life, we try as Christians to keep the commands of Christ and leave behind the Christ of the commands. Meaning we try and keep the rules under our own power and and check the boxes and perform and obey. And what we're doing at that point is we're pursuing a righteousness of our own when the whole point of changing to look like Jesus is that the righteousness that he has gifted to us be made visible in and through us. And so if I live trying to keep these commands divorced from relationship with Jesus, what happens is, is when I have a good week, I have too much confidence in myself. And when I have a bad week, I have too little confidence in Jesus. And instead of uh, in my failures leaning into grace, I lean into resolutions. I will never, and I'll try harder, and, and never again, right? Because we're trying to keep 
the commands of Christ outside of relationship with Christ. I had a friend uh, who got married uh, several years ago, and shortly after he got married, his job transferred him overseas for several months. And because of the job that his wife had, she had to stay home. And so they spent uh, almost the first year of their new marriage apart from one another. And I remember calling him a few months in and just asking, man, what's it like to be newly married and to be apart? And uh, he said, you know, we're okay, we're doing all right, we're kind of learning how to function together. He said this, but I'm realizing that the vows of marriage are meant to be worked out together, not apart. What you see over and again in the Bible is when you get to these uh, rules, when you get to the commands of what it actually looks like to change, the Bible fights against this empty rule-keeping by surrounding the commands with all of these reminders of who you are, by rooting all of the rules in the work of Jesus and relationship with Jesus because the commands of Christ are meant to be worked out together with Christ, not apart from him, in relationship with him. So I say all that and want you to know that we'll spend a lot of our time this morning walking through these commands, but at the end, we will come back to this truth because we will need it and because God wants us to be reminded of it. Look with me again at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Uh, I planted a tree this week, and I've never done that before, but these are strange times, and so I'm sure there's been a lot of firsts for all of us. Uh, around our neighborhood, there are these beautiful uh, trees, and, and these trees, they have these deep red, almost purple leaves. They're called Japanese maples, and you've probably seen one, maybe you have one. And Carrie and I, as we walk around uh, the neighborhood, we would just comment about how, how beautiful they are, how pretty they make a yard look, and we talk about uh, wanting one in our yard and, and wanting, if we did have one, uh, to put it kind of right in the middle of our flower bed, like right next to the sidewalk as you enter into our house. And, and here's the problem. There's already a tree there, and it's not a beautiful tree. It's kind of a strange-looking tree. And so what had to happen is there were two things. In order to plant this new tree, there was an old one that I had to remove, and in removing the old one, it's not just removing the parts of it that are visible, but digging out underneath it and, and uprooting that old tree's root system because in planting the new one, there couldn't be anything underneath the soil that would disrupt the growth or anything underneath the soil that would stunt the growth, right? Because the old tree's root system would be incompatible with the new tree uh, needing to grow and needing to flourish. And so that's what happened. There was a lot of digging and a lot of cutting away and then planting and fertilizing. And that's a metaphor that the Bible will often lean on to talk about growth in the Christian life, that there's two things that happen. There's a removing and there's a planting. There's a cutting away and there's a feeding for new life to grow. It says this in verse 5, put to death what is earthly. The word earthly there is a metaphor uh, for ways of living and thinking and acting that are according to the world, uh, that are the way of the world and not the way of God and not according to God. Uh, so what it's not saying, and I know you've heard this from me before, but it's not saying uh, that we escape the world 
That's not the Christian story. Jesus prays in Matthew 6, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The Christian story is not escaping the world to get the benefits of heaven, but about changing the world with the power of heaven. So put to death what is earthly. If we were to state that positively, it would say put to life what is heavenly. Live in such a way that heaven is on display in your life. Uh, And heaven is where God rules and where God reigns without resistance. And so as we obey God, as we keep God's commands, as we are changed by God, what happens in our lives is they become a small picture of heaven on earth. Jesus is is really helpful uh, in synthesizing this. He summarizes all of the law into a short twofold command, love God and love others. Love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. The, the, the Christian ethic, what it means to be most truly human, is to love God and to love people. And when that happens in our lives, when we love God and when we love people, we put the kingdom of God that is coming and the reality of heaven, it's on display here on earth in and through us. And that happens by two movements. That happens by putting to death and bringing to life. That happens from putting off the old and putting on the new. So like planting a new tree where an old one used to be, as we become people who love God and love others, there's a removing that happens in our life and a planting that happens in our life. It's removing out of our lives things that are incompatible with growth and incompatible with change, right? That the things in our life that make loving God and loving others uh, stunted or impossible, it's these things that choke out love for God and love for others. And where we are in this passage, what we've read is this passage is about removal. This passage is the uprooting that happens. It it uses violent language, put to death. It's harsh language. Uh, This is the violent work of killing that which will strain out or that which will choke out love for God and love for others. And where does that work happen? There are two words that we see in this verse that we cannot miss and the meaning behind those two words. And if we miss what it says here, uh, what, what, what we read in the rest of this passage, and really what we see in the rest of the book will just not land on us the way that it should. Here are the two words. Put to death what is earthly in you. The ways of thinking and the ways of acting in those things, those roots of the old way of life that make new life unsustainable, those things, the, the lack of love for God, the absence of love for others, where is that? It's in you. It's in me. Where it comes from, let me say it the way that we've said it around here for years, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Biblical anthropology, um, meaning what the Bible teaches about humans, what the Bible teaches about people, falls into two broad categories or or, or falls into two different buckets. And and the first is that humans have dignity and value because they're made in the image of God, that every human is sacred, that before doing anything spectacular, before accomplishing anything, before offering anything – Every human is valuable and worthy of honor and respect because they bear God's 
image and what God has wired into every human is a unique personality and unique gifts that are shaped by experiences. And he made us that way, wired us that way, so that we would be deployed into the world to image him and to create and to reflect him. And so every human life is sacred, and that's truth number one. Number two, humans are broken. Every one of us. Uh, sinful, and that brokenness is not external like we want it to be, but primarily it's a problem of the heart. It's why Jesus will say it's out of the overflow of the heart comes anger, and out of the overflow of the heart comes lust, and out of the overflow of the heart comes violence and envy and, and all things that are evil. When he says what is earthly in you, he is pointing at where we, where, where I and where you most need change. The heart of the problem is the problem of my heart and the problem of your heart. Now, if we, if we could consider something together, uh, put to death what is in you, that's harsh language. It's honest and it's true. And we're not going to shrink back from saying boldly what the Bible says, but but before we turn our attention there, which we will, I just want to acknowledge something. Here's what he doesn't say. He does not say everything about you is earthly, meaning not everything needs to die. I think one of the ways that we can err on this, uh, especially uh, especially being reformed, Uh, especially believing like I do in total depravity, one of the ways that we can misunderstand this uh, is this idea that everything about me is sin and everything in me is something that needs to die. And that can lead to this uh, hyper self-criticism and this morbid introspection and this assigning evil motivations to everything I do and everything I think and everything I want, which really what that does is it just magnifies the voice of shame and drowns out the voice of Jesus. Look, As someone who grew up in church, the son of a preacher, as much as I have struggled with sin in my life, I have also struggled from believing wrongly that everything in my life is sin. Salvation is us being restored, not us being replaced. You understand what I mean by that? You can't respond. It's okay. Not everything needs to be killed. That's the point. That some things, some things need to be cultivated. So if you think about our illustration, not everything is the root of the old tree that needs to be removed. Some of you needs to just be redeemed. God wired you in certain ways. He wired you with certain gifts and strengths, and those have been shaped through experiences. And part of becoming like Jesus is knowing those things about you that can be redeemed and that can be cultivated to be used for the glory of Jesus. So I joked 15 minutes ago that some of you really like the list and you like hearing the list of rules because you like using a spreadsheet, and that's a way that God made you to think in details and to think strategic and to think, uh, you know, in, in, in linears and all of that. And he does not want to kill that in you. He wants that to be cultivated in you to be part of the mission of bringing heaven to earth. Others of you can create 
and, and, and you have these natural artistic gifts. And it's just so frustrating to me because at my house, you can't tell the difference between what I draw and what my two-year-old draws. But what God has given you that he hasn't given me is, is the creator God has placed in you his image and he has given to you an extra measure of his creativity and his artistic imagination. And he doesn't want to crush that in you. He wants to cultivate that in you. Follow me. It's why... Uh, I've been personally so encouraged by somewhat of a resurgence in the evangelical world on knowledge of self. Uh, knowing us, knowing who we are, is not just about knowing our sin and knowing our bents, but also discovering the unique ways that God has made us. The most popular example of this would be the popularity of the Enneagram right now, right? It can be, those things can be like a helpful tool in discovering how God has made us as long as we view those through a biblical lens and a biblical worldview. But God gave you gifts and wired you in ways with a unique personality, and those parts of you are not earthly in themselves. Uh, they're not necessarily uh, in and of themselves evil. What's happened, sin has distorted them. And sin in you has bent them away from reflecting God. Sin in you has distorted those things away from reflecting God and from honoring God. And it's bent them towards reflecting self or worshiping something else. And following Jesus, what it will do is it will make you whole again by aligning in you how God has made you and aligning how God has made you with his will for you, which will mean your gifts and your personality and all of you will be redeemed under a holy ambition of seeing Jesus honored and glorified and made much of in and through you all around the world. Look, parenting has helped me with this. It's at least helped me understand this. Uh, God has made my children different from one another. They're not the same person. And there are individual unique things about each of them. And it's my responsibility as dad to see and speak into not just their sin, but to see and speak into their gifts and how God has made them and how God has wired them. And so two months ago when we went to Israel, my oldest went with me and he turned nine while we were there. And uh, if you have multiple kids... Uh, you know this, when you get one-on-one -on -one time with any of them, like when their siblings are not around and it's just you and them, you're just able to see more of their person come out, uh, more of how they think comes out and what interests them and their fears. And, and I just saw that coming out of my son on that trip and just discovered things about him. And if I were to sum it up in one word, the word would just be proud. I was just so proud of him and proud of what I saw coming out of him, and, and um, we were in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we were praying, and, and he was away from me, praying underneath a tree, and I just watched him pray. And with kind of all that fresh on my mind, right, of the things that I'm proud of and the things that I've seen in him, and then also knowing that he's a sinner in need of grace and change, I prayed a prayer for him that I've tried to be faithful to pray for all of my kids. And I just closed my eyes, and I just prayed, Lord, would you give me eyes to see and to shape his person and his gifts. Lord, would you give me patience in disciplining his sin? And Lord, would you give me the wisdom to know the difference between the two? 
Give me wisdom in knowing what needs to be removed and give me wisdom in knowing what just needs to be reoriented around you because my job as dad is to help and to lead and to shepherd and I don't want to crush in him what needs to be cultivated. Would you know, my friend, that God feels the same way about you? That there are things in you that God does not want to crush, but that he wants to cultivate. Ways that God has gifted you. Not everything about you needs to be put to death. As you grow in love for God and love for others, it's going to make you whole by aligning uh, the way God has made you with God's will for you, which will mean your gifts and your person and your personality and all of you will be redeemed under the holy ambition of seeing Jesus made much of in the world through you, through who God has uniquely made you to be. Not everything in you needs to be put to death, and that's not what it's saying. What it is saying is that there are things in all of us that are incompatible with love for God and love for others. Things in all of us that do need to die. And that's where we turn back to our two words, the roots of the old tree, the sin in our life. It comes out of our hearts. It's what is earthly in you and in me. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And so he offers examples. He, he names them so that we would not be confused. He names what needs to be put to death. And so let's just walk through the list he gives. Verse 5 goes after desires that are incompatible with love for God. These are things that we find that belong to the old life, right? And they are desires uh, that are for self and not for God. And so he says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion. These all have to do with perverted desires around sex and the gift of sex. And so taking the gift that God has given and engaging with that gift outside of the design of the giver, and, and which is to ignore God as the giver and to use the gift according to our desires, which means we act like God. And look, trying to be God is the opposite of loving God. And so if I could offer as a side note, he writes this. He's writing about a Christian sexual ethic to a city that is as confused about sexuality as ours is, and he is writing about it uh, to a culture that, that is as distorted around this issue as our culture is. And so let me offer a comment or two. Here's the Christian sexual ethic, that it is reserved for marriage between a husband and a wife. Think about something with me. What God says about sex is not subduing passion. What God says about sex is both honoring to God and protecting and honoring to us as humans. To say that it is reserved for marriage is to say this, don't offer your body to anyone who will not also promise to care for your soul. You know this, you know this. What happens to our bodies doesn't just happen to our bodies. We are not compartmentalized like that. We are body, mind, soul, emotion, all interconnected as one image bearer of God. 
And so to engage intimately with another person is physical and emotional and spiritual. And that kind of vulnerability and trust belongs in the context of a promise between two people who say, I am not just with you physically, but I am covenantally bound to you in soul and in heart and in mind. And that kind of promise only has one name, marriage. Would you see how God's commands are for you, not against you? So to put to death the desire in you that would question that God knows best and that would feed passion over pleasing God and obeying God. And then it says evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. So evil desire here does not mean desiring evil things. It can mean that, but it can also mean wanting something good in a bad way. It's why it's paired with covetousness, right? To covet is to want something someone else has in a way that steals your affection and your attention. And so it places at the center to covet these evil desires is any time what is placed at the center of our desire is something that is not God. This takes us back to last week, right? Jesus is our greatest love and demands that he be our greatest love. And so sin is not just wanting bad things, but it can be wanting good things in a God way. Wanting things that are not God the way that we should only want God. Loving most what is not most lovable, which is Jesus. If we jump down to verse 8, he's going to have another list. He says, you must put them away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. He lists these and says, put to death this whole other set of things. If verse 5 had to deal with desires that are incompatible with love for God, verse 8 are things that are incompatible with love for others. Verse 8, these are sins that divide people. These are sins that divide a church. These are sins that spoil relationships, anger and wrath and slander. These are all ways that hatred for someone is embodied in our hearts or embodied in our hands or embodied in the words that come out of our mouth. Put to death what is earthly in you. It's just the ones he names. Immorality, impurity, anger, evil, slander. And there's much more to say about each one of these, but we come back to our two words, in you. Where do these things begin? Like uh, if we see lust coming out of our lives, where is it coming from? It's coming from my heart. Uh, if, if I am obsessed with what everyone else has that I don't, it's not because there's something that's absent in my life. It's because there is sin that is present in my heart. One of the most common ways to talk about anger, if you just think about this, you hear it all the time. One of the common ways to account for our anger is to say something like, you made me angry, or this circumstance made me angry. And God tells us that anger does not come to us. Anger comes from us. I can be provoked, but when I am angry, no one or nothing made me that way. It came from my heart. The question I ask about my anger is not who caused it. The question I ask about it is, is it righteous or is it unrighteous? Does the anger reflect uh, the heart of God or does the anger coming out of my life reflect a heart that wants to be God? This is where some of us check out, or this is where many of us maybe plug our ears. 
because we want so bad to believe that all of our problems are external, or at the very least, we want so bad to believe that all of our problems are externally caused. Because if it's in my heart, it means I'm responsible for what comes out of my life, and I don't want to be responsible. Carrie and I, when we got engaged, I asked a friend of mine who is a counselor to do our premarital counseling. And he and I are meeting, it's just me and him, and he asked me a question. He said, Jamin, what do you think is going to be the biggest struggle in your marriage? This is, we're engaged before we even got married. He's saying, if you project into the relationship, what do you think is going to be the biggest struggle? And I said, without even a thought, I said, oh, communication. It's going to be our biggest challenge. And that's the default conclusion, by the way. The most common thing that, that I hear is that, that most marriages believe in their conflict, that they are just a little improved communication away from having a happy marriage. And it helps, and it's necessary. I'm not trying to belittle that. But my counselor, who was a friend, uh, he said, hey, communication's important, but can I tell you something? He said, your biggest struggle in your marriage is going to be you, your selfishness, your desire for the world to orient around you will be the thing that you battle most. And I knew he was right because he's wise. And I looked at him and I said, hey, please don't tell Carrie that. I'd like to keep that just between us. Uh, well, she found out without him having to tell her because she married me and, and you know he's right. If I think about our marriage, my biggest struggle has been my desire for the world to orient around me. And my biggest struggle has been the things listed in verse 5 and the things listed in verse 8 that come from my heart and come out of my life. And that desire for the world to orient around me clashed with her desire for the world to orient around her. And unless selfishness gives way to selfless love, no amount of communication advice will help. Look, if in your marriage you, or any relationship you get better at communicating but not honest about selfishness, your improved communication will only amount to managing each other's self-centeredness. But I want it to be a communication problem. We all do. Because if that's it, then what needs to change is our interaction which is out here. If the problem is communication, the change takes place out here. But if the problem is a selfish heart, that change takes place in here. That change is internal. It requires ownership. And that's just a harder pill to swallow. But listen, this is where change begins by believing that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And if we believe this, friends, my beloved church, if we believe this, uh, what is earthly in you. If we believe the words of God, we will not try to redefine our problems in ways that make them sound less sinful and that make us less responsible. We will not believe about us that everything I do is because of what's been done to me, but what I do is primarily because of a sinful heart inside me. Uh, if this is true, I can't blame sin in my life on how I'm wired. This is the air we breathe. This is, this is the battle cry of a culture of expressive individualism. It says that I am wired. My personality is why I do what we do. And my friend, look, we do not have anger uh, and idolatry and discontentment, and we don't covet what other people have, and we don't have evil desires because we are a middle child or because of what number we are on the Enneagram. 
those things can be helpful, right? But knowing all of this, believing what the Bible says, the anger, the lust, the envy that comes out of my heart, and if I am looking at what God calls sin in my life and saying it's just part of my personality, that is a dressed-up version of blame-shifting. And I know some of you are like, well, Jamin, you must be an eight. I don't know. But I know this. You won't grow. You and I. We will not grow in knowledge of self, definitely will not grow into becoming like Jesus by deceiving yourself that what God says needs to die is just part of who you are. In verse 10, he speaks identity and says you've put on the new self with all of the talk and all of the chatter around us about being true to yourself as a Christian, your true self is not first defined by your feelings or your wiring or your number or your gifts. Your true self is defined by your Savior. You are most truly you when you are most like Jesus. You are most truly you when you are most like Jesus, which means what is not like Jesus in us, we take responsibility for and we put to death because it's ours. So much more to say here. Verse 9 says don't lie to each other. Like on this journey together, we need to be honest, which means being honest about how we're presenting ourselves. Verse 11 goes after the sinful heart that, that says we're prone to think that we're better than one another based on race or based on class or based on position. So we need honesty and humility, honesty about us and humility that we are not better than anyone else. But where I want to end is where we began, surrounding the commands that we just read, surrounding even the reality that the heart of your problem is the problem of your heart, surrounding that is the Christ of the commands. It says this at the very end, Christ is all and is in all. He is with us. He is with you. Yes, you and I are responsible for the sin in our lives, friend, but we are not alone in fighting that sin in our life. Jesus goes after the roots with you. Jesus goes after the sin in your heart with you, beside you with love and grace. Remember, the commands of Christ are worked out together in relationship with Christ. And just like we said at this point in the sermon last week, the entire time I've been talking to you, the Son has been talking to the Father about you words of life and intercession and forgiveness and identity and grace. And that same Jesus walks with us as we own the evil inside of us and invite him and lean into him for the love and the grace and the patience to cultivate in us a love for God and a love for others. Jesus, we love you and we need you and we thank you. I thank you again that as I'm speaking, you're speaking, preaching a better sermon, speaking truer words from a better heart about all of us. And so, God, would you give us the humility and the honesty and the self-awareness to be able to own what we need to own in our lives? Maybe what this means is that it, it translates immediately, even before communion, into an apology 
or even into just an honest prayer that, Jesus, I am beginning to understand for the very first time that I need change at the level of my heart. Thank you, God, that you are the kind of God that only crushes in us what needs to die, and you cultivate in us what you want to redeem that is part of how you've made us, that we would glorify you and honor you in our lives. We love you. You, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, you are truly beautiful, and you are worth changing for, and so would you make us Citizens Church, a people who are honest about the sin that comes out of our heart, and a people who represent the interests and the beauty of heaven here on earth as we love you and we love others. We thank you. Amen.